Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Juma Araki. Juma is a certified personal trainer from the Norwegian School of Sports Science and holds a bachelor's degree in nutrition from Atlantis Medical College in Norway. He also holds the IOC's Diploma in Sport Nutrition and is currently studying his Master's in Sport Nutrition at the University of Stirling. Also to that, he also runs his own company, Iraqi Nutrition, that provides training, nutrition, education and consultation-related services to business and athletes. He is the head of AFTP. PT, where he is a lecturer in sports nutrition, also works as a sport nutrition for the Norwegian Judo Federation and as a business consultant for a protein fabricant in Norway. So welcome onto the show, Juma. Thank you so much, James. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we delve into today's topic of supplementation, can you talk to us how and why you wanted to become a sports nutritionist? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've always been, uh, I've always been into sports. So I played soccer for 10 years for my local, um, local club and soccer is still a big passion for me. Uh, I follow my team, Newcastle in the North of England. So that's been a bit of a roller coaster the last <laughs> couple of years. So, so yeah, I've been a supporter for 25 years, but, but, uh, yeah, I, when I finished college, I I um I went to the army for a year, and that got me thinking about what do I want to do with my life. So I was actually going into business first, and I did a year where I studied the uh, business and administration. But I I quickly realized that yeah, I wanted to be a business owner, but I wanted to do something in regards to training and nutrition. So a friend of mine just told me that she just recently started a bachelor's degree in nutrition. So I was like, I want to jump on that as well. So I just signed up and started reading. And the more I read, the more interested I got in, in, uh, in nutrition, specifically, specifically looking at, at sport. Uh, but actually, when I first finished my degree, I worked two years at a clinic here in Norway, where I basically just work with obesity type 2 diabetes and and um like lifestyle related diseases but i quickly found out that my passion was in sports and that's what i wanted to focus on but i think the main driver was like a lot of other people do uh, uh, do i think is trying to um perform better yourself uh, i think a lot of people that do uh, sports science are uh, are interested in finding out how they can improve their own performance and also the performance of other but one thing that a lot of people may not know is that a lot of people in the sports science community are athletes themselves so people get the idea that just because you're doing research you're you're uh, a pencil neck with with uh with a white lab coat and you've never lifted or you've never done any sports but uh, to be honest i don't like the 90 percent of the sports scientists i know have been athletes uh, previously or are current athletes so if you look at the fitness industry now like look at brad schoenfeld that's doing great research uh, eric helms doing great research you also have people like lane norton that do uh, research all of them have been bodybuilders, like Brad Schoenfeld was a bodybuilder in the past. But if you look at Eric Helms and, and, and Lane Norton, they've competed both in bodybuilding and in powerlifting. And you see uh, examples like that uh, everywhere when it comes to sports uh, scientists. So, so yeah, same thing goes for, for me. I basically just wanted to find out how, how I could improve my own training the best way and also help other people. So, yeah. Oh, I think you raise a good point there, Jim. I think even my listeners won't know I was, I, well, I did sports science at university and obviously I've got that athletic background as well. Mm-hmm. So you raise a good one. And I think 
I think it gives us another option to continue our careers in that sporting environment as well. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think especially for me, when I played soccer, I was really competitive, and when I quit playing soccer i needed to find something else to be competitive in so 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 yeah i've just used that 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 motivation to um get as much knowledge as i can and work with with high level athletes and like i wouldn't trade my job for anything else in the world i i'm privileged to actually work with with the things that i'm most passionate about uh working with athletes daily uh, but I also have a, a huge variation in my in my work because I, I do uh, I, I lecture so I work as a teacher I do I work with supplement companies helping them improve their products and quality management and also working one on one with athletes so I'm getting a lot of variation in my uh, in my job and like I said I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Oh, I think it's like you've said, you've gone full circle in terms of you went into business first. Mm-hmm. You wanted to find a passion that would like, you've virtually gone full circle and utilizing your knowledge for nutrition mm-hmm. and that business degree that you've used and obviously making it to full use. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my first question for you, Juma, obviously we discussed it a little bit off air, is I spoke to James Krieger, who I think it was a while back now, about protein timing. Mm-hmm. However, you talked about it with uh, muscle, the Muscle Building Summit, about having too much protein, as in it is a myth. Mm-hmm. But what is the consequences of, say, it, it from, from a new, uh, nutrigen, uh, nitrogen uh, perspective? Okay, so that, that's a great question because a lot of people get the misconception that if you take in too much protein at once, the body will absorb some of it and the rest of it will... Uh, will be excreted uh, through urine. That's what a lot of people say, that excess protein won't be absorbed and then you, you basically you're pissing out your excess protein. If you're pissing out protein, there's something wrong with your kidneys. So you're not pissing out your protein. What basically happens is there's, uh, there's a limit to how much protein you can use for what we want to use it for, which is maintain and build uh, tissues in our body and specifically muscle tissue. So the body will absorb what it needs for, for that purpose. The rest of it, the body can convert to energy, but uh, the, body, the way the body converts it to energy is that we have proteins that are built up uh, of amino acids. So we have amine group and then we have uh, acid group. And the amine group, it contains nitrogen. And if that's not absorbed by the body, uh, and we um, we uh, take it away from the acid part, it, it can be uh, toxic to the body. So the body needs to excrete that out from our system. So it will do that by sending it to our um, liver and then and converting it, and then it, it's, uh, it's excreted from our kidneys. So when we measure our urine, um, we can find uh, nitrogen being excreted from that so what they did in the past uh, is use um, something called nitrogen balance studies where they would measure how much are you absorbing and how much is excreted from the urine and if 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 they were the same you would be in in an energy balance if you were taking up more than you were excreting that would mean that you were in a positive nitrogen balance and that's what you need to uh, build muscle to be in a positive balance. If you're excreting more than you're taking up, uh, absorbing, that means that you're in a negative balance and uh, that the body is basically breaking more protein down than it's uh, it's building up. So that's the misconception with uh, a lot of people uh, that a lot of people don't understand. That's it's basically nitrogen that we measure in the urine. And you need to do like a nitrogen balance uh, control to actually see if is this protein wasting up. Because if you go from a low protein intake to a high protein intake, uh, the body needs some time to adjust the absorption of protein. So uh, if you were to do that correctly, because I, I know a lot of, especially here in Norway, they've done some studies on TV where they are trying to 
say that protein shakes are a complete waste of, uh, of money. So what they do is they, they take a group of people which have a normal protein intake and then they make, make them drink a protein shake and then they measure the amount of uh, nitrogen that's in their urine and they see that, oh, this is, in, this is increasing and uh, that basically means that we're uh, wasting a lot of protein. But that's not, the, that's not the case and nitrogen balance has its limitation. That's why we don't use it as, uh, as much anymore. We use... Um, uh, something called tracers to look at uh, the balance between what's absorbed and what's uh, excreted. And that's the technique that we use uh, more today. But if you were to take like 100 grams of protein at once, the body will absorb what it needs to, to tissue to maintain or build it up. The rest of it, uh, the body will actually uh, slow down the, the rate of absorption so that it can uh, digest the amount of protein that's ingested and then there's other functions in the body where we can use protein we can convert it to we can both convert it to uh, glucose and then store it as glycogen or we can also convert it to uh, to fat as well so the body doesn't really like to waste nutrients to, to say the least yeah I think also you raised a good point there, Juma, in terms of uh, that television study saying people uh, shouldn't be taking protein powders. But when you said normal, obviously it would depend on what the actual activity level of the individual was because in most cases the general public don't know actually how much they're consuming in the first place. And it's more on the micronutrient, obviously, of carbohydrates, I think, oh, I, I, I don't eat enough carbohydrates. Actually, that is massively higher, and it's actually you need to have a, a shift within that. So when you say normal, wouldn't that wasn't that going to differ, differ between person to person, as in terms of what that baseline is? Yeah, absolutely. And I also think I think you're raising a good point here as well, because when you look at uh, when you look at statistics from different countries where they're looking at okay, how much protein are people consuming? they normally don't find that people have protein deficiencies. They basically always say that, or most, or most of the cases, they say that um, the general population consumes sufficient amount of proteins. The problem with that is it's not only the total amount of protein that you're eating that's important. Uh, the distribution of protein during the day is important. The amount of protein for each meal is important. And, uh, and the third thing is protein quality, because you can, you can get sufficient amount of protein if you have a high calorie, high carbohydrate diet, because you get a lot of the protein from, for example, grains, uh, or other carbohydrate sources, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting high quality protein. So if you, one rule that I have with my athletes is if we're aiming to get say, for example, 30 grams of protein in a meal, we count protein from all sources. But what we do is it, the contribution of a complete protein source needs to be the doubled amount of the, at least the double amount of the un incomplete source. So for example, if you're eating a sandwich and you're eating a lot of bread and you're only use, uh, using a couple of slices of ham and some cheese, and you're getting 10 grams protein from the cheese and the ham and 20 grams from the bread, that's not optimal. But if you reverse that and say, okay, I'm getting 20 grams of protein from the ham and cheese, and the last 10 grams I'm getting from, from the bread, that's, that's, that's more optimal to say the least. So um, there's a lot of research on, on leucine and the importance of leucine in each meal, leucine, which is an essential amino acid. And basically what they found is you need to have a, a leucine uh, concentration to maximize protein synthesis in each meal. And that would vary based on what type of protein source you use because whey protein, for example, has a high concentration of leucine in it and you would need less whey protein compared to a, a chicken breast or a steak or fish. But it doesn't it's not practical to go around and talk about, okay, you need this amount of chicken. And if you're going to eat steak, you need this amount. That's why we have more ranges for how much protein you should eat in each meal. And I think for most people, 
25 to 40 grams of protein in each meal is, uh, is sufficient. And you also should aim to have uh, an even distribution during the day. What I see typically with the general population and athlete is that they usually eat um, uh, insufficient amount of protein for breakfast, insufficient amount to lu uh, for lunch, and then they have a huge amount for dinner, and then they're eating insufficient amount for uh, for supper and that's not optimal you should try to not only look at the total amount of protein you're eating during the day but also that you're getting enough protein for each meal and that you're having um, frequent feedings during the day i wouldn't go below three meals a day uh, but i also wouldn't go higher than six meals during the day so if you try to stick between three and six meals i think uh, you're good to go but then also, Juma, do you, do you think it's that comes back to the knowledge base of being, or, or to a certain extent, manipulation with marketing, that people are, when you put them on a, say, a protein diet, obviously breaking out throughout the day, they'll obviously question breakfast. Why am I having fish or, or some, or we'll say some kind of protein for breakfast, when as they'll say, why, why can't I have cereal or or porridge or something like that. Do you think it's a kind of a misconception and they've kind of been manipulated in a way as that's been kind of forced down your throat or you must eat cereal for breakfast? Um, can you, can you uh, explain one more, one more time so I get the question right? Do you think in your opinion that obviously when people uh, kind of question you in terms of having protein for breakfast, do you think it's because they don't have the knowledge background or the marketing is kind of being manipulated to say, Oh, you need to eat this for breakfast and everything else is kind of mm, not normal. So, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. I, I get, I get what you're asking. Yeah. Because I think we have meals that we typically define as breakfast meals. Uh, and, uh, I know I know a lot of people when 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 you try to get the get them to eat more proteins they get this reaction that what why do I need to eat more proteins I don't have any goals of being a, a bodybuilder or I'm not a high competitive athlete and stuff like that but like if you were to look at all the populations we have now and see who actually could benefit from focusing a lot more on protein it wouldn't be athletes it actually would be elderly people because we're really struggling with a lot in a lot of countries with uh, with uh, sarcopenia which is uh, the, uh, which is the breakdown of muscle tissue and if you lose a lot of muscle you'll also lose a lot of uh, functions in your body so there's a lot of research like if you look at protein research now there's a lot of research looking at, okay, how can we break this uh, vicious cycle by uh, getting elderly to maintain more muscle mass? So they're incorporating resistance training and they're also incorporating more, um, more protein in their diets. And the easiest way for elderly to get more protein is using protein shakes. So that's actually the, the population I think would benefit most from taking uh, supplementations of protein, because when you get elder, uh, when you get older, you usually don't have uh, a big appetite, and like when you don't have a big appetite, it it's not like you you don't crave like chicken breasts and stuff like that. It's more like sweet and fatty stuff, which are um, which are uh, good to eat, which are which are tasty but are not as, uh, as uh, filling, but, uh, but yeah, but if you look at uh, Stuart Phillips's research on that topic and also his opinions on that for people that don't know who Stuart Phillips is, he's one of the leading researchers on uh, protein metabolism. Uh, he's actually recommending that we increase the protein amounts for the general population even more and than what they are today. So, uh, they're talking about going from, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the United States, it's 0 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. They're still using that. While in Norway, we're using 1.1 to 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. They're talking about increasing it to 1.6 as a, as, a, as a baseline value. And obviously, if you exercise, that amount could, could increase more. 
And if you look at the recent research on resistance training and protein recommendation, that range seems to be between 1.6 and 2.2. But yeah, I think a lot of people uh, don't really understand the functions of protein in the the body for general health. They assume it's just important for people that want to want to be strong and jacked but that's really not the not the case well you could say that was an extra piece that's it's obviously the first component is um um, lost my train of thought there but obviously to rebuild and obviously to 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 get to get stronger but it's to like we touched upon offer it's main it's maintenance first that's what the body wants to do is to keep you at that optimum level Mm -hmm. and obviously that's talking about function and anything else or you could talk about genetics as well, because the people that are, oh, see if I get this right now, ectomorphs, they put struggle to put uh, muscle mass on, but mm-hmm. still have that baseline that they need protein to be able to function properly. Mm-hmm. But you touch upon there, Juma, when you're talking about obviously the older population needing protein shakes. I'm, I'm assuming, and quote me if I'm not wrong, if I'm not right, would you say more as a protein shake as a supplement as opposed to say a meal replacement one? Uh, like usually when people ask me about supplements, I don't really define protein and bars and carbohydrates in powder form as necessary uh, supplements in that sense. It's more like it's more food because if you look at protein powder, it's basically concentrated milk especially if you're looking at whey protein. Uh, whey protein used to be, uh, uh, or it still is, a liquid byproduct from uh, w- from when we make cheese. And we used to throw that away and, and didn't use it for anything. We used to feed it to the pigs. And then some uh, some people found out that, you know what, there's a lot of nutrients and bioavailability in, in the whey protein. So, But the, the challenge is that in the liquid form, it doesn't really taste that good. And uh, also, uh, when we make cheese, the lactose uh, will follow the whey and not the casein that we uh, use to make the, the white cheese of. So you need to you need to filtrate it to remove as much fat and fat and and lactose. And uh, there's different techniques to use it. If you filtrate it uh, once, you'll get a concentrate. But there's other filtering uh, methods that you can use to get more uh, a more pure uh, protein powder, where you're basically just have it's basically just protein and minimal amount of fat and carbohydrates and, and lactose, which we call isolate proteins. And there's also a version where you you hydrolyze. The, the isolate and you get uh, whey protein hydrolyzed. So that basically just makes it easier for the body to absorb. Uh, the body has to work less with it uh, regarding digestion and, and uh, absorption. So yeah, there's, there's, um, there's different techniques. But I think the misconception with protein is that, uh, protein powder is that people think that it's, it's something magic, that if you exercise, you have to take a protein shake. But it's it's really not uh, it's not really not that uh, how it works. It's basically uh, let me give you an example. If you need 200 grams of protein and you're able to eat 200 grams of protein from your diet, a protein shake on top of that isn't necessarily going to do anything. But let's say you're you need 200 grams and you're all, you're consistently just being able to get in 160 grams of protein. You're always missing the, the last 40 grams of protein. That's when you incorporate a protein shake with 40 grams to get the, the, the amount that you actually need. So protein powder is, isn't something you just can use before and after exercise. You can basically use it uh, during the whole day when you actually need it. So I'll have days sometimes where I don't use a protein shake at all, uh, and other days, I might use two protein shakes based on my schedule. If I'm traveling, for example, I'll incorporate more protein shakes. If uh, I'm staying home for the whole day and working from my home office, uh, and uh, is uh, and um, and have uh, a kitchen available, I'll probably just cook myself a meal each time I'm eating compared to drinking a, a protein shake. 
So yeah, I I think it's I think it's a, I think it's a tool that you can use to uh, make sure you're getting a sufficient amount of proteins in your diet. But I don't think you'll you'll see uh, any difference if you were to say get all your proteins from food compared to using protein shakes. <coughs> But what would be your argument for somebody that says, oh, I can get all my protein from, um, obviously, natural food as opposed to incorporating, as you said, whey protein within the diet as well? Uh, like, if you can get all your proteins from your diet, that's, that's, that's great. But, uh, again, you don't really have to use uh, protein powder. But, but most people find it, uh, convenient to have protein powders during the day because they don't really want to eat four, five, six meals. Uh, and they might prefer to have some meals in a liquid liquid shake. But you don't really have to use protein powder. If you, for example, like females that weigh uh, 50, uh, 50 kilograms, for example, and let's say they need roughly about double their body weight in protein, so about 100 grams, 100 grams of protein is is pretty easy to get in your diet. So in those scenarios, I don't think you necessarily need um, a protein shake. But if you're starting to um, if you're starting to weigh 100 kilograms and above that, we're talking about much more protein. So one thing is the amount of protein that you need. Another thing is to also consider is the cost of buying whole food compared to protein powder because in some cases it's actually cheaper to use a protein shake to get some of your proteins compared to buying whole foods but there like i said there's no magic in it it's just uh, it can save you some money it can, it's it's convenient uh, and it's practical to, to to have when you're traveling for example and uh, don't have a lot of access to a high protein foods and if I move on to my next question, Juma, I was, also I've also spoken to Mario Tomic in the past. He talks about using vitamin C and omega-3 for supplementing his nutritional needs. However, I would go a step further and recommend vitamin D, obviously this time of the year now, to my clients. What would be your take on why we should use vitamin C and omega-3 and possibly omit some of the other um, supplements? Okay, so that, that's a good question. I, I, I agree with you that vitamin D is probably something that uh, a lot of people should supplement with because of all the vitamins that we have, uh, vitamin D is by far the, the hardest to get sufficient amount from. So especially if you're living in, like I live in Norway, in Scandinavia, it's, we don't really have a lot of months during the year where we can get a sufficient amount of vitamin D from, from the sun. So we have a we have a we have a rule in Norway that you should uh, you should focus more on your vitamin D uh, consumption from your diet in all the months that doesn't have the letter R in them. So basically, in Norway, we're stuck with May, June, July, and August. Those are the four months where we're able to produce enough vitamin D from sunlight. The rest of the year. We have to incorporate fatty fish, uh, take uh, cod oil, um, eat whole eggs. And we have some dairy products here in Norway where they add vitamin D. But if, you're look, if you look at the amount for, 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 for milk with, with uh, vitamin D in Norway, you have to drink about two liters of it to, to get the minimum amount. And even the minimum amount might not be enough. So... Uh, what I recommend for all people is that before winter, you should get some uh, blood drawn to see how your uh, values are. And if you're like uh, borderline deficient, it's probably a good idea to, to take uh, the vitamin D supplementation. But if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you've been traveling during the summer and have been able to, to fill up your vitamin D stores, um, you don't really have to take a, a high dosage, but you can maybe get away with a small maintenance dose during the, the winter. But yeah, vitamin D is something I absolutely w would, uh, would, uh, would supplement with. 
when it comes to uh, when it comes to omega three, um, like if you can eat fatty fish at least three times a week, uh, my opinion is that that's um, a su- sufficient amount of omega three as long as you're getting it from a, a high quality source because there's the omega three content in fatty fish can vary a lot uh, based on what type of fish it is. So my general recommendation is to get in two to three grams of uh, EPA and DHA uh, per day. So for most people, it's, it's easier to have a combination of supplementation and eating some fatty fish during the week. But, uh, but uh, don't look at the omega-3 content. A lot of people look at uh, how much fish oil there are, there, there are in their capsules or how much omega-3. You have to look at the ratio between EPA and DHA. And combined, they should be between 2 and 3 grams. So if you're taking a low concentrated omega-3 supplement, uh, you might have to take several capsules during the day. So um, my recommendation is if you're using uh, supplements, try to find a high concentrated version so you can get away with maybe four to six capsules a day based on the the amounts that that are in them. When it comes to vitamin C... uh, I don't necessarily agree with using that as supplementation uh, every day because there actually is some research from from Norway uh, and it's it's four studies. Uh, a researcher called Jordan Perlsen has done a lot of these uh, studies. They basically look at uh, what effect vitamin C and vitamin E supplementation has on both endurance. Um, and resistance training. So they've used, in all their studies, they've used a, a gram of vitamin C and 235 milligrams of vitamin E, which is a which is a big dose of vitamin E, but not a big dose of vitamin C. A lot of people use a gram a day on a regular basis. But uh, the reason why a lot of people use antioxidants is uh, when you train, you produce free radicals. Uh, you also do that when you eat and basically everything you do, you produce some free radicals. But especially when it comes to training, uh, the theory, theory has been that since when you exercise, you pr- produce more free radicals, it might be a good idea to use antioxidants for that reason. But what, uh, what they actually found in all these papers, all, all these studies, was that training adaptations are are worse when you're taking high doses of antioxidants. So in the resistance training studies, they found that the participant didn't really gain as much muscle mass and they didn't get as strong. That's one thing. And they're looking also, I think, at the, at the cellular, uh, cellular level. And what they found on the, on the endurance studies was that when you uh, do endurance ex- exercise, the training adaptation, some of the training adaptations that you want are uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, and they actually saw that that was decreased when you took high amounts of vitamin C and vitamin E. So I don't really recommend uh, those supplements for my uh, athletes on a regular basis. I don't like to use those things uh, chronically for these uh, reasons and based on these studies. But I can see where it might be beneficial to maybe supplement with some antioxidant. For example, what we do is we'll use antioxidants and other thing, things to aid our recovery during competition where we have several days uh, where um, the athletes are competing. So in competition, we might use some antioxidants. But in our training, we won't use that because of these reasons. So uh, acute intake can have its place, but I wouldn't use a chronic intake of, uh, of uh, uh, antioxidants in, in supplementation form. And just to get it on the record, we're talking about supplement, supplementing antioxidants. There's still a lot of benefits to getting antioxidants from your uh, diet, but uh, you won't necessarily... I, I think it has something to do... Like my theory, I don't really have... I don't have. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of research on on this, but my theory is maybe that we're not able to get those high concentrations of antioxidants from our diet because you have to eat a lot of 
bell peppers and uh, kiwi and and uh, oranges to get a uh, thousand milligrams of vitamin C uh, during the day. So so yeah, it's my th- theory, but I haven't really seen any research explaining why there's a difference between fruits and dietary supplements in that regard. But Juma, in terms of say a pre- prerequisite for the general public, would it differ your answer in terms of obviously vitamin C or would you say people should maybe fill it, follow that similar model, model of periodization that would you would use with your athletes? Um, I, I think I would go with the same recommendations that I use for my, for my athletes. Like, like the, the amount of vitamin C that you need uh, to not get any deficiencies is pretty low and it's really easy to get it from your, from your, uh, from your diet. But, uh, but yeah, like I said, I would just stick with the basic recommendations. I know a lot of people use vitamin C to, uh, when, when they get uh, a cold and to aid with recovery, but I haven't really seen any research that uh, are convincing in regards that vitamin C in high amounts helps when you when you're sick. Well, that probably moves nicely to our next question. Then, is yeah. there any supplements out there that you think are are overhyped but aren't necessarily actually going to help people achieve their goals? Okay, so that's a great question because. Um, there's a lot of supplements on the market and some of them have a substantial amount of research behind them showing that they have a lot of benefits. But there are also some supplements which are sold in like high quantities uh, but aren't necessarily going to give you a lot of benefits, to be honest. I think if I were to pick a supplement, uh, it would be branched-chain amino acids. Basically because... You get a lot of BCAs from your protein, uh, dietary protein sources. You also get a, a lot of uh, BCAs if you're using protein powder. Like whey protein is like 20% BCAs. So if you take 50 grams of whey protein, you're getting 10 grams of BCAs. But there's studies showing that uh, BCAs increases um, muscle protein synthesis and it does it does increase muscle protein synthesis but in those studies they've compared it to nothing and that's the problem <laughs> they've compared it to nothing so if you were to compare bcaas to whey protein or another protein source i don't think you'll uh, see a, a, a huge difference so um, me personally i would spend my money on more on things that we actually know has a beneficial effect so uh, can BCA be uh, used in some type of sort? There's there's some research showing that if you're gonna do like vicious exercise for several hours, that BCA might help. Uh, but we're talking about huge amount. We're talking about like 30 grams of BCAs you're you're consuming, and I don't think they're like in that study. They actually found that it can have a some beneficial effect. Like it can. Um, go you let you go longer without feeling exhausted. So time to exhaustion is is increased, but we don't really know if you would get the same benefits from drinking a protein shake or eating a, a protein uh, protein source. That's why I also say that I think it's uh, I think it's a bit hyped, and I would rather spend my money on other supplements. So what we know has beneficial effects if you were to take uh, people that do resistance training for example what we do know works is caffeine works for all types of sports but i think you can get away with a a a smaller concentration of caffeine if you're doing resistance exercise compared to endurance exercise so typically what people recommend is between three and six milligrams per kilogram of body weight but I've seen some research showing that you can also get benefits when it comes to resistance exercise by using concentrations under three milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So caffeine we know has a beneficial effects and it doesn't necessarily seem to be any difference if you're drinking coffee or taking it in, in a capsule or tablet form or if you're drinking energy drinks, as long as you're getting in caffeine it has benefits, but it might be good to cycle the caffeine intake by, for example, going 
using it for three weeks and then one week you're taking a week off from caffeine to keep the body uh, sensitive to it because it has a tendency to lose its effect if you're having a chronic intake. So caffeine is definitely something I would use. Another great supplement is creatine monohydrate. So creatine can be, and there's various forms of creatine, but creatine monohydrate is still the most researched version of, uh, of creatine. Uh, a lot of people have digestive issues with creatine, but if you, if you do experience that, there's some guidelines that you should use to minimize the risk of having digestive issues. Uh, one of them is to use 100 milliliter of water for every gram of creatine monohydrate you're using. So if you're taking in three to five grams, you would use 300 to 500 milliliters of water. Uh, another thing is um, creatine. If it's get uh, if it uh, gets uh, diluted optimally in, in in liquid, it gets absorbed better. But if it's not, uh, the, the 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 crystals that are in the creatine, it can start to have um, uh, side effects on your GI system, and that's what's causing the the the, the cramping and, and diarrhea that a lot of people experience. So if you use hot liquid. Uh, you would see that the creatine monohydrate uh, dissolves easier in the hot liquid compared to to, to cold uh, liquid. And the first studies that came out on, on creatine several years ago, they actually used hot tea to to consume the creatine monohydrate. And this is something I've tried with uh, several athletes that struggled in the past to take uh, creatine by using more water and also using hot liquid instead of cold liquid. And you can basically just do a test at home you take a glass with cold water and warm water and you dump in a scoop of creatine monohydrate in each and stir around, you will see that in the hot water, the, uh, the, the creatine gets dissolved much easier compared to the, to the cold water. So, but there's two ways you can use creatine and creatine doesn't really have an acute effect. Uh, you can basically take it uh, whenever it's convenient for you. Uh, for example, I remember to take it before I go to bed. So I take it before I go to bed. So since it doesn't have an acute effect, um, just take it daily and when it's most convenient for you to take it. So there's two ways you can use it. You can either use a loading phase where you take five grams of creatine uh, four times a day for five days and then you go to a maintenance dose of three to five. But you can also just start with the maintenance dose of three to five grams and wait uh, three, three to four weeks and that will accumulate a lot of uh, creatine phosphate in your muscles and will be actually the same if you were to do the, the loading phase. So it depends if you want to increase your stores fast or, or not. But in most cases, I would just take the maintenance though because it's easier to just take it one, uh, one time a day and it uh, reduces the risk of uh, GI issues for, for a lot of people. So uh, besides that, um, beta-alanine, uh, increases uh, something called carnosine in your muscles. So it basically acts as a pH buffer in your muscles and has been shown to be uh, great for uh, uh, sports where the duration is between 60 and 240 seconds. So in every team sport, they've seen benefits from beta alanine, like soccer and ice hockey. They've also seen benefits in uh, middle distance r runners like 800 meters and 1500 meters, but uh, they've seen uh, most of the benefits in combat sports like boxers and judo. Uh, they see that uh, if you they the punch frequency is improved and also the the, the punch force is improved in in boxers. And when they do in the in these studies, they've done simulated fights uh, and looked at the difference between. Uh, beta-alanine and placebo and they see a big difference between the two so beta-alanine you have to take between three to six grams a day and if you're doing resistance exercise it doesn't really have a, a, a benefit unless your training involves uh, short rest periods and high repetitions so if you're doing typical crossfit training for example it might have a benefit but if you're if you're doing um, like powerlifter training or weightlifting, I don't think you'll get any benefits from taking beta-alanine. And that's one thing that a lot of people need to understand is that supplements are also sports-specific. 
So some supplements can work, but you also have to look at which sport they can work. So for example, beta alanine, if you're a powerlifter, that's a waste of money, to be honest. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that. But if you're a bodybuilder and you're, or, or, or just lifting to increase muscle mass, if you're doing sets of 12 to 15 and above, it can have some uh, benefits. But uh, uh, if you're doing combat sport, it's definitely a supplement you should take. And you might need to take it several times a day because if you take it all at once, it can have a side effect. Uh, a lot of people uh, will experience a flushing feeling where they start to itch and get red. Uh, and some people like it, other people don't. But this is a trick that a lot of supplement companies in the States use. They'll use a, a blend of ingredients and they won't... Um, they won't tell you what's in the product because it's it's basically a blend of it can be a blend where it says oh, let's call it uh, yeah buddy twenty thousand milligram blend and they have uh, forty ingredients in it but they haven't specified how much of each mm. how much it contains of each ingredient so what they do sometimes in those supplements is that they will use a high dose of caffeine and a high dose of beta alanine because those things you can feel on your body. But there's actually studies looking at the itching effect from beta alanine. Does it have a performance enhancing effect? And it doesn't. It's just a harmless side effect. And if you like it, cool. If you don't like it, just split up your doses. Either take, uh, you can take 750 to 1500 milligrams four times a day. Or you can, like, if you're lucky, you might be able to get away with three grams two times a day if you're taking the maximum dose. So if you're doing, if you're doing combat sports, uh, you should aim for the highest dose, so six grams. And like creatine, beta alanine doesn't really have uh, acute effects, so it doesn't really matter when you take it. Uh, the last supplement that I would recommend is citrulline malate. Uh, citrulline increases an... Uh, uh, nitric oxide in in, in, our, in our body, which can increase uh, blood flow and increase uh, increase um, increase the pumps when you when you're lifting weights. So they've seen uh, uh, some benefits of taking citrulline mallet. And citrulline you have to take acutely before training. So caffeine and citrulline you need to take about thirty to forty five minutes before you work out, and you need you need a big dose of of citrulline. You need, you need about six to eight grams taken before exercise to see the benefits. And a lot of pre-workouts today, they use citrulline mallet, but they don't use enough amounts of it. And the reason is because um, citrulline is really uh, acidic and it has a tendency to, to, to ruin the flavors of a lot of products. So that's why a lot of supplements companies don't use high amounts of it. So, um, but, but yeah, they see, they've see. I think last year, uh, there's a researcher called Glenn. He, I think he has two, two papers on citrulline and there was three other more showing benefits for resistance exercise. So um, they saw increases in how many reps you could, uh, you could do, increases in weights. There was less muscle soreness after exercise and it was, uh, it was improved recovery as well. So citrulline is definitely something I would... Uh, recommend for people and to be honest uh for 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 most people that's uh where it stops for me if you're into endurance exercise there's other supplements that can be uh beneficial like uh sodium bicarbonate uh beetroot juice there's other things that you can use but if i were to select my preferred supplements those four would be would be it to be honest and Juma, my uh, last question for you before we wrap up the episode. If you had to summarize this entire show that we've done today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Oh, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. Um, since the topic is supplementation, I would say uh, if, you're trying to, if you're trying a new product or you want to try to, a new product, 
get as much information as you can before starting to use it. And a great resource to, to use for that is a website called examine.com, E-X-A-M-I-N-E.com. So um, examine.com does um, a lot of articles on their website and they also summarize the research on a lot of ingredients. So you could, for example, type in creatine and you could go, uh, you can read everything. You can read the, the mechanism on how creatine works, how, it, uh, how it's made. And you can also look at research that has been done and different claims for what creatine can do. So for example, uh, you can look at power output, you can look at increasing creatine content in muscle, increases in muscle mass, etc., etc. And for each one, you can see what's the confidence level, how robust is the research to, to show that this claim has, um, has strong evidence behind it. And you can also look specifically at the studies that they've looked at for the different topics. So this is a, this is a free website. So it's a great research, resource to use, and I highly recommend it to, to everyone. Oh, one thing you probably alluded to, it's it's always looking to update itself. So if there's any new research out there, it's always looking to be up to date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So Juma, once again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. My pleasure. It was, a, was a great to, to be on your show. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it would be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.